This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Kara Warner. Hello. Kara, we're delighted to have you on the show and to have you doing interviews. As I think we've said, you're an expert at talking to famous people. And who could be a more delightful famous person for you to catch up with for today's episode than Mark Ruffalo, the Oscar-nominated star of Poor Things? Do, do you guys go way back? I can imagine you like talking him on the set of Avengers or something. That's so kind. I honestly feel like Mark Ruffalo is someone that everyone goes way back with. Uh, he's... One of the more beloved humans, both, you know, with actors and then journalists who get to interact with him. Uh, he's someone that just is so genuine. I, I've i been at, you know, press junkets where actors will find out that he's in the building and they will make an effort just to come by to say hello. <laughs> and they're not even part of the film. Like he's just, he's one of those that you are so happy to root for and then just excited to speak to whenever he's, you know, promoting or doing great work. Yeah. Um, yeah. His performance in Poor Things we've been talking about for so long that it's it's not exactly like Ken and Barbie, but there is so much like shared DNA there. And I think a similar level of surprise when you see Poor Things, you know, it's about this young woman played by Emma Stone and her journey. But as soon as he shows up on screen, he really almost runs away with the entire thing. And he's such a famous, nice guy that playing this total jerk is such a wonderful surprise, which I'm imagining you talked to him about. Yes, I, I was just so excited to hear how he felt playing a total slime ball because there's I think there's such a delightful twinkle in his eye on screen in the movie. And I think that those were the things that made me giggle throughout is just mm -hmm. that he goes all the way there. And it's just the way his character throws tantrums is delicious. And just it was so fun. And, and it, it was just great to hear him talk about you know, that, that that role was intimidating because he really doesn't get offered or get asked to do comedic things. And so it, it was great to get into that and to hear a little bit about the process and how he's now would happily, you know, seek out some more comedic roles. I mean, it's crazy that people would not offer him comedic things. He's really funny. <laughs> I feel like very well known for being funny, but yeah. all right, Hollywood, get it together. Um, well, I'm really excited to hear your surely delightful conversation with uh, Mark Ruffalo, Best Supporting Actor nominee for Poor Things. Well, it's so exciting to welcome you to Little Gold Men. Yeah, it's cool to be here. Yes. Thank it's, you. It's, I think... Watching you and your cast with Poor Things has just been sort of enjoyable from the outside looking in because, it, first of all, it just seems like you all enjoy each other. We really do. We we had uh, such a great time, and and a lot of it was just informed by this three week kind of rehearsal process that was really just us playing and goofing off and really being such idiots in front of each other that there was just nothing more that we could do to embarrass ourselves. And because we were doing that, it just made us very um, intimate and feel very safe uh, together. And so yeah. we just love each you know, we became a little family. Did anything, I know you weren't rehearsing the actual, you know, lines from the film with that. Did anything transfer or did anything from the rehearsal kind of infuse performance or was it just kind of the the family that you built or the kind of comfort well it was a great place to sort of try out 
ideas, you know, and um, and we all had this sort of script living in us still, and that was already giving you an enormous amount of direction. Um, it's just so specific. The characters are written so specifically. The, the dialogue so specific. The world you're in feels very specific, and that's also building constantly building by our work with the dialect coach. Uh, by going into hair and makeup tests every day and, and having your look start to emerge or uh, going into the ward costumes and, and having your costumes start to inform you. And so it can sound like, oh, you guys just played around for three weeks, but we were all sort of trying things out. And it was such a a gift because I don't know that I could have really come up with that kind of outrageous physicalization and, and physical comedy and that dialect and just every dimension of him without that time. Yeah. What was your first impression of Duncan? I can't remember if your ghost told you about the character or if you just your first introduction was reading, reading him. It was just reading. Yorgos doesn't, he doesn't tell you very much. Um, he tells you a lot in his silence or his laughter. Actually, there's an enormous amount of nonverbal communication that's that's happening. And, and you know, what you're seeing from the those three weeks of us together is like, there's a communication that we have with each other that's very physical, that's you know, not in our heads. It's 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 very playful, and yeah. it's very you know, and it's. I mean, not to get too woo woo, but but you, you start to feel people, and you feel their vibe, and you feel what's working with them, and you feel what's not, and it was very similar with with Yorgos. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, I think. One of the things I was I was lucky enough to speak to your cast. You were you were at the NBR Awards, so I was uh, we were doing a chat with the cast. So that was the only reason you were not present. Um, That's but right. One of my favorite things I asked them was, "What did you enjoy most about watching Mark in this movie?" And they everyone just lights up because it's I think it's fun to watch everyone in this movie. But yeah. was there kind of I don't know, a fun entry point for Duncan? Because I've seen that you've talked a little bit about the comedy elements were a little daunting. But again, you know, you're a, you're a professional trained actor. I feel like you could do anything, but it's always fun to hear kind of the fun of the challenge. You know, uh, it was very daunting to me. And I, 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 um, I just hadn't done anything like that since I was probably in my early 20s, you know, doing, you know, off, 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 you know, Hollywood Boulevard independent <laughs> theater. You know, I, I didn't even make it to, to New York. Right. And, but we were, you know, we were doing a lot of slapstick stuff. And mm -hmm. we did a production of Godot that was just, it was just slapstick. It was slapstick in vaudeville, you know. And uh, to find that world and to, you know, we were using all these references. We were using Charlie Chaplin. We were using Buster Keaton. We were using... Um, Cirque du Soleil, we were using all the modern clowning, we were using dance, we were, you know, we were using all of these inputs. Um, and then, of course, Beckett, who's just like the most opaque, impossible uh, playwright to to really get a hold of. Um, yeah. So I'd had that experience and I want and I had the best time and I wanted to have that experience again. But, you know, my film work never really got there. And um so when it did happen, I was like, I don't know if I could do this anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm 56 now. I'm not 23, 24. But I want to do it. You know, I, I, I want to break free. Uh, I don't even think I realized how much I did want to break free until I was actually there breaking free. Yeah. Is there... I always think that because you're... you. Actors are immersing themselves in a character and kind of the environment, and some of that scene work is very intense. Is there something especially fun about inhabiting Duncan that, like, either lifted you or just can you talk about kind of the fun of how outrageous he is? I mean, some of the tantrums you get to throw are delightful. He's such a cock. <laughs> <laughs> a cock-a-doodle-doo. Yes. He, you know, he's, yeah, I mean... 
so I've been playing pretty demure, like the nice guy characters, you know, fighting for what's right. I, you know, I've had more Duncan kind of characters er, early on in my career. Um, but it's been a long time since I've actually gotten to just be the biggest asshole, <laughs> narcissist, child, uh, so insecure, so outrageous, so entitled, so bratty, so um, so much essentialist. Yes. It, it, it's just he's... He has no boundaries. Like he, he does whatever he wants, all impulsively. Um, you know, he, he's so entitled and spoiled, and just to 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 throw off all of our social conditioning, especially now when we've all become like this surveillance system of each other and all of each other's behaviors and who's doing what and did you see that? And, you know, then it becomes a public lynching on people. Yeah. It's just a very oppressive time. And to just like, just break free from being well-behaved was so delicious. <laughs> Was there one of the things I loved hearing from your costume designer? Because again, those the costumes are so exquisite. Yeah, was that you got to experience a little uh, padding and maybe some restriction? Can you talk about like the first time you saw it or you put everything on and what that was like? Well, you know, I was looking at a lot of pictures, um, you know, from the eighteen hundreds and um, their drawings. You know, their fashion yeah. plates from the eighteen hundreds. But but there was a you know there's a line to them and there's a a form to them and the the waists were very thin and they were very straight and the you know the collars and starting to bring that to life physically and trying to get that like quality in being and in the, the 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 shape the silhouette of the piece was was something that Holly and I were really in conversation about and at one point I was like I want to wear a girdle you know, I want that. I want that waistline that these guys have. I think he wears a girdle, and they're like, "Oh, yeah. you could." And I was like, "And he, when he takes his clothes off, he still has. Let's have. Let's see his girdle." You know, <laughs> yeah. And and so that was a you know. And then I had. And then we're like, we wanted those curves that they had in those in those plates. You know, right. so we were adding padding to my thigh, to my thighs, to my ass, to my calves. So we, you know, we got all those shapes that that are really accentuated in those plates and impossible for a human being to actually have. We were like, <laughs> I was basically like the Barbie of of guys, you know, in, in the turn of the century. Right. That I think that's a good way to describe Duncan. How does it how did it impact your movement or did it? Well, it just, you know, I'm wearing literally high heel just heels like this. So I'm I'm on my toes, you know. It's oh. it's everything's very forward and and up and, you know, I had a cod piece. We we had this huge cod piece made <laughs> so that it, you know, that he wore him, you know, that Duncan wanted to look that way. And right. so he has this big stuff propensus and he's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that all sort of, you know, the, he had BD, you know, BDE, yes. you know. Yes. So yeah. so it all sort of like starts to take shape. And it, it, the costume's actually giving you so much of that if you know how to listen to it. Yeah. And you don't fight against it. You actually say yes to it, you know, and you, you're willing to be uncomfortable for a while until you feel natural, until you feel comfortable in it. Right. Duncan, a true peacock, right? True peacock in all the sense of the words. Such a peacock and so fun to, to play. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. 
Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. One of the things, again, you know, hearing your cast talk about it, Emma talked about how kind of exhausting the dancing was, just in an exertion element. Was there a particular sequence or, you know, scene work for you that, was particularly memorable? I mean, that that is the whole relationship dynamics in, in yeah. the film and the quintessential, essential version of who those two characters are, you know, and, and all of the, their dynamic, but also like their personalities. And it, that was just very exciting. It was, it, you know, I, I had never danced really like that or you know i've never done anything i mean i did the thriller dance i was gonna say we can't we know you can do choreography we can't discredit that (laughs) but um but that was also really hard for me too i'm not a natural dancer and yorgos reminded me last week that i'm actually a terrible dancer (laughs) (laughs) but that's why you're so good (laughs) why did he how did he remind you that just because it works for the character I don't, I don't, he just told me the, uh, the, the, we were at, we were at dinner and someone was like, you're such a great dancer. I was like, yeah, I guess I'm okay. And he's like, you're a terrible dancer. <laughs> and, uh, I love hearing everyone's Yorgos, by the way. And I'm, is Yorgos? Yorgos. You it's Yorgos, Yorgos. If yeah. you're, if it's us talking about him, but if you, if you're talking to him directly, it's Yorgos. Uh, I love it. It just seems like so fun. Was there, you know, in the spirit of getting to watch your cast members, uh, castmates do stuff, I think... Willem was saying you guys were kind of trying to make each other laugh. Was there was there an enjoyment in watching some of your castmates do what they're doing in this movie? Oh my god, we would all be showing up um, yeah. on our days off to to watch. Um, it was so inspiring, and we, and you know we were all rooting for each other so deeply. You know we and. We were, you know, so playful in rehearsal and, you know, people were playing with their characters in rehearsal. I mean, that, that was definitely happening. And so to to encourage people to have that same kind of freedom on set, which is really hard to do. And Willem, I'll never forget my first day. He's like, you're really going to do that. <laughs> I thought you were just doing that in rehearsal. <laughs> Bold. <laughs> And it totally works. It works. It is works. there? Are you someone who can watch yourself? I'm wondering, like, what your first reaction was to kind of seeing the finished cut or or whatever you saw finished of you as Duncan. Um, it's usually really, really a painful experience to watch. <laughs> but with Duncan, no, I usually am just like getting lower and lower in my chair. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, what am I doing there? Oh my, ah, uh, you know. Yeah. But um. With Duncan, it was just so, he was such an alien to me. You know, I did feel like, I'm not really in, I'm not really in there, you know? Like, I'm in there somewhere, but I, I can watch this and, and, and be like, I don't know that guy. Did I do that, you know? Um, which is, I guess, a weird thing to say. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, I think, right, uh, again, my outside impression of what acting is, right, is being in the moment and absolutely transforming. So that seems like success to me. <laughs> I like that. Um, thank you. 
Yeah. But it did. I I did I was able to enjoy it in a way that I don't normally do. Yeah. Or can. Has, has there been obviously, you know, an acclaimed film, uh, many of the performers acclaimed award nominated. Is there not that you're paying attention to reactions, but I feel like the reactions to poor things have kind of been really lovely and colorful. Have you been surprised or particularly, you know, either have any any reactions been particularly memorable for you? Or, or people wanting to talk to you about, if you, are you having kind of fun or more colorful conversations? Oh, my God. It's, I, I mean, I've been in some, I think, really fantastic movies. And I've worked with, like, the best people and movies that are universally loved. But for a non-sort of genre piece that isn't a superhero movie, which you know, I I also um, personally love to do and enjoy. I I've never had kind of this kind of adulation or love or really highbrowed sort of criticism of it or reception of it. You know, and it's just very exciting, and it's it's just so unique, and it's just so original, and it's um, it's so creative, and I. The one thing that I hear constantly and makes me the happiest is I love film again. Like, I can't wait to go out and make my next movie. Like, I can't wait to to push the boundaries. Like, this is what we should be doing. This is why we got into it. This is this is what we should all be striving towards. You 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 totally renewed my idea of what great filmmaking is and what it can be. Um, that's been probably the most exciting thing about, uh, you know, how people are reacting to it is just from our own community. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, again, you you have been in a lot of fantastic films, whether yeah. they're critically acclaimed or awarded or not. When it comes to kind of, you know, the the Oscar conversation, how do you either separate yourself or involve yourself? How do you How do you kind of reconcile with the noise of awards and then getting a nomination? How do you approach it? <laughs> well, it's it's evolved over time. Um, you know, you start off and you're like, hey, you know, it's academy. You know, you're sort of cagey about it, and you don't, yeah. you know, you don't want anyone to, like, you don't want to look like you're going for it. You know, it's just, <laughs> uh, but you're all so you hate it, but you 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 love it, and you know, it, like that's definitely happening. And um, you don't know how to, you don't you know you don't. It's impossible. It's an impossible situation in a way because, you know, you you don't want to get caught up in it, and you and you. It's weird to be up against your fellow actors in this kind of competitive way in something that's right. just really so abstract from from what we actually do. You know, <laughs> right? It's like a symbol of what we do, but not actually what we do. But you know now I'm 56 and who knows I mean this this might be the last time this ever happens you know you get to a certain age and you're like thank you Dana I appreciate that right <laughs> but you get to she's like mm, I don't know about that but you get to a certain age and you do sort of you just start to appreciate things in a in a in a different way I, I do anyway I, I can't yeah. speak for everybody one one of the things I love is you know that people you've worked with throughout the years are also a part of the conversation this year. And I, I love seeing people that genuinely like each other run into each other over and over again. Can you talk a little bit about Annette, Julianne, Mr. Downey Jr.? What has that been like? You know, appreciating their films, I assume, um, but also loving. kind of yeah, seeing them a bunch. Yeah, loving their films, lo you know, l just loving their careers, like... It's very moving to me, actually. It's it's um, it's hard to do this, and yeah. it's hard to stick it out, and it's hard for the industry to, to stick it out with you. You know, it's just, and um, these are people that I just admire so so deeply, uh, just as people, but as as performers, as artists, and I do feel like this is a really special year. Yeah, I, I've seen every performance. I, 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 you know, which I rarely do, um, and I, and I love them, and I think it's 
totally appropriate that all the people are there who are there. And um, to see Robert, like, and Robert's one of the all-time greats, and, and he um, he's done great work for a long time. Yeah. And to see him being lauded the way he should be and should have been a long time ago is is really sweet and uh I love him and you know and he's so generous and been so generous and kind to me over the years and like the greatest cheerleader to everyone. Yeah. I mean and that guy you know he's he helps a lot of people. He really does. Like people who have gone down the same road as him. Like he no one really knows that about him, but he hmm. he's he helps a lot of people. In the yeah. most generous, humble way. And that's that's special. Well, I think you you mentioned a little bit about, you know, staying power in the industry, ebbs and flows, but it, specifically with you and and Robert and Annette and Julianne, all four of you, again, outside looking in, seem pretty generous and and giving in your relative worlds. Is there you know, I don't know if you guys all stay in touch or it's just sort of the fun of running into each other. How do you, how have you kind of maintained those friendships over the years? Well, Julie, uh, <laughs> Julie and I were friends first and then Sunrise met her and, and oh. basically stole her from me. But <laughs> Sunny says they come for me and they, they come for you, Mark, and they stay for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that there's some truth to that. She, so so we we go out to dinner with them. We hang out with uh, her and Bart. Oh, nice. and it's it's really sweet. Um, and that I you know I don't see as much and not in contact with. But you know whenever I see her, there's just an enormous amount of love and respect. And and Robert, you know we te- we're on a text chain together. We we FaceTime together. Um, and. We just have this. I've known Robert since before I even had my first gig. Really, you know, wow. I, I've known him since the '90s, um, wow. and so it's been really cool to uh, to sort of grow up in his shadow in a way, and to to have him, you know, lead the way in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of us actors, um, hmm. and to uh, to be here side by side with him is is really sweet. Yes. I mean, again, it's it's so delightful to watch, especially this is an exceptional year. And, and we've been joking that the Best Picture nominees, there's not a clunker in the bunch. Sometimes, there's, a cl- an, uh, sometimes there's an outlier, but this year, <laughs> no. not at all. Um, is there anything else like you want to just mention about the ride of Poor Things or just the fun of this one having longevity and kind of getting to, to interact with your cast a little bit longer and, and kind of be at all these events together? Yeah, I mean, you know, the one person I am missing from my category is, is Willem. Um, I just think he's, I think this is, I mean, just a remarkable uh, addition to uh, already a remarkable career. And uh, I miss him. You know, we, I really, he, he and I just really hit it off from the very beginning. And, uh, but, I gotten to spend a lot more time with them um, than we ever would have gotten to spend in this really rarefied moment where we're all being celebrated and it just feels so real and authentic and deserved. And Emma, who I just adore, I get to I get to spend time with her because you know we we go off into our lives. I mean, yeah. actors, you know, the only time we get to see each other is. <laughs> It's the award season. I right. mean, we're all sort of doing our thing unless we're really in close proximity with each other. And so uh, it's been beautiful to um, to get to spend more time with everybody and then just to hang out with all the people that you never get to see. Yes. Yeah, it's so fun. Well, I'm going to cross our fingers that more comedic roles are probably crossing your desk. Oh, please. please. Hey, anybody out there, if you're looking for comedic, clownish sort of slapsticky in <laughs> actor or otherwise I'm your guy I can do it
So now for our second interview, I do worry we're setting an unfair standard for little gold men pairs in terms of like delightful people to talk to, um, because I talked to the writer and director of American fiction, Cord Jefferson, who is a first time Oscar nominee. This was his first film. He used to work at Gawker with our colleague Richard Lawson and everyone who's ever been in New York media uh, isn't very jealous of all of Cord's success, although I think we all know that he has talent that maybe the rest of us <laughs> would need to match. Um, but American fiction has been such a wonderful kind of underdog surprise of the season. And I liked getting the chance to talk to Cord about the Toronto premiere that I was at and kind of what he expected going into it and how he kind of managed expectations going from there. Um, Kara, I know you weren't at Toronto, but I assume you've seen the same thing I have this season with people being like, wait, did you know about this movie and how great it is? It, it sneaks up on people and I think it's continuing to. Right. And I think people are seeking it out that wouldn't otherwise I've just been hearing that, like, I have seen people kind of comment, oh, I saw American Fiction this weekend. And and it's a very pleasant surprise that people have sought it out and, and gone to see it. And I, yeah, I'm so looking forward to hearing what you guys talk about, because he just, I've only had a brief interaction with him. And he just seems, he seems like someone you can talk about with anything. You know, he has yeah. just really thoughtful things to say and is a great conversationalist. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, like, the tech billionaires ruining Hollywood and then also like the writing process. So we went everywhere. Um, but I love what you're saying about people seeking it out because we talked for a while about how he, he pitched the movie when he made the movie. Uh, the title was Fuck, which if you've seen American Fiction, you kind of get why that would be the title. Um, and then he kind of realized like this movie won't be released anywhere but tiny theaters if we don't give it a new title, yeah. um, which I guess you could call like, you know, scaling back on artistic ambitions, which you can imagine Jeffrey Wright's character in the movie, Mom. Uh, being really dismissive of, but totally. I think it's paid off as you and I, you know, I, you know, have told my father-in-law to watch this movie. It's, it's really has something for everybody while also having kind of the subversive ideas you would have imagined with that original title. So oh, it yeah, paid absolutely. Off. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a great time talking to Cord and I think you'll enjoy listening to it. So here, my conversation with Cord Jefferson, the writer and director of the five-time Oscar nominated, including Best Picture, American Fiction. If you don't mind me kind of flashing way back to when I first saw American Fiction, when most people did, uh, the, the world premiere at Toronto, um, which I don't know how many audiences you had seen it with before that night. Um, I've seen it with zero. Yeah. So it like it wasn't like a surprise going into the festival. You know, a movie with Jeffrey Wright, a lot of us knew your work. But it was more under the radar than sometimes movies come into Toronto, I think, because the strikes were still going on. There was, uh, you know, there was not the pomp and circumstance. And it was this thing where so many of us came out of this and were like, oh, my God, did you know about this? <laughs> and I wonder how that felt from your end. You knew you'd made your movie, but I think the expectations game can be so different. So how how did you feel going into that? And maybe when did you have the sense that it had gone well? Uh yeah, this is a look when we submitted the film to the Toronto Film Festival, I remember having a conversation with one of the producers on the film who said, "Temper your expectations. This is a very competitive year. It might not get in." And he was like, "And it is. For I mean, it's like 75% of the huge directors in the world decided to make a movie this year, you know." <laughs> so, and so he was like, "You know, it, it might not get in." So, I was literally jumping up and down for joy in my kitchen when the movie even got into the festival. Yeah. I was sort of, I, I was prepared that it might not get in. We'd been rejected from other festivals. And so to me, it was like, we got in, this is incredible. And so I didn't even allow myself to like dream bigger than that. I sort of like, I was like, we just got into a film festival. I'm yeah. just going to take it day by day and like go to the festival. And so to me, where I started to feel a little bit more comfortable was like, you know, I initially asked if I could if I could not sit in the audience. Like I was like, I, what if I just don't go to the screening because wow. I, I just I'm like I'm I have anxiety and I was just like I don't know if I'll be able to sit there and sort of like not freak out and panic and and they were like you should you should sit in the theater. Well, I mean, Ryan Johnson, one of your producers, had Knives Out, this like kind of iconic Toronto hit. I hope he yeah, could at least be like, exactly. dude, it's yeah. worth it. Well, that's what that's what everybody was like. You should sit in there, just relax. Uh, and so it was like twenty minutes into the film when I when I felt like the audience was responding. It was like, oh, they're laughing when I want them to laugh. Like they they're they're enthusiastic. It's sort of like the right parts. They're sort of you know the, it it felt like the audience was going along for the ride that I wanted them to go on. And so 
it was like 20 minutes or a half an hour. I didn't, I won't say that I was like finally at ease, but it felt like, oh, it's working. It's what, like, mm-hmm. at least with this audience, it's working. And this is like a very important audience for it to work for because it's yeah. the first audience that is seeing this in the real world. And so it felt like if it works with these people, then maybe there's a chance it's going to work with other people as well. Yeah. I mean, you had gone through an Emmy process with Watchmen, but awards Oscar season is really a different beast. What kind of expectations, once you're in Toronto, once you've gotten past that expectations, what kind of expectation setting did you get for this? And how how many surprises has it been on the road to get to today? It has been, you know... it's yeah, it's been a lot of surprise. You know, <laughs> winning Toronto was a surprise. You know that that was that really sort of took me aback. And then we won a bunch of sort of audience. We won the audience award at Middleburg Film Festival. We won the audience award at the Austin Film Festival, and we won the audience award at the Mill Valley. Like it just started. It started to be like, oh, okay, this has some momentum in a way that a lot of us didn't think it would. You know, this is yeah. a movie that we made for significantly less than 10 million dollars we shot it in 26 days when we when we sort of were looking for distribution before we shot the movie uh 98% of the people who saw the creative uh passed on it so so this was a movie that we made sort of like with no auspices it was just kind of like we're putting this out and and we like it i think that i'm proud of it we're all proud of it but you have no idea what people are going to think and so yeah, it, it, it like everything was just a surprise. It was just always a surprise. That I, I don't think like Oscars I, the the morning of the Oscar nominations. I again I have anxiety, so I so I forced myself to try to sleep through them as best I could. Did and you? I I did. I I I stayed up as long as possible on Monday night. <laughs> for me, it was three a.m. I stayed up until three a.m. and then I took half a Xanax to try to really knock myself out. And so I. Woke up finally at seven. So I got like four hours of sleep. And by the time I woke up at seven, I looked at my phone and I had 228 missed text, text <laughs> messages. And so it felt like, okay, something good has Strong happened. It's the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that morning, too, like I think, you know, we're allowed to expect things for you. You know, you have to manage your expectations. But, you know, like Sterling K. Brown getting nominated is something that surprised a lot of people. Like the level yeah. of victory there. Um, yeah. You know, it's people wanting to rush around and surround you even more than they would have. Yeah, no, that was that was the thing that really was look, any acknowledgement is nice, but the thing that I felt especially proud of for the film and proud of for them was that, you know, it's just a, a lot of people got acknowledged from the film. Sterling, Jeffrey, Laura, the composer, like yeah. like to me it's a it's a recognition of a sort of holistic enterprise and sort of like a, something that, that required a, a group effort and sort of the group being acknowledged is 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 lovely. And, it, and I'm just, I this is a movie that everybody could have made more money working on something else. You know? <laughs> like, like, truly, like everybody, everybody who worked on the movie could have made significantly more money. Jeffrey could have made more money shooting a whiskey, whiskey commercial in two days than he made <laughs> making this movie, right? And so- this was uh, this was something that people were passionate about. Sterling said he had he'd intended to take like a six month um, sabbatical, and then he read the script and was like, "Well, I'm not taking a sabbatical anymore. I have to work on this thing." It was yeah. it was something that people were passionate about, and so that passion is is being recognized and acknowledged and celebrated. is is really it means the world to me. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I mean, you've been the kind of the face and spokesperson for this movie, especially when the actors were on strike and Jeffrey couldn't do press. But when you were pitching the movie, too, you mentioned earlier how you pitched it and tons of people, you know, passed on it. How did you kind of learn to be a a spokesperson for yourself in that way, to pitch and to be the voice of your movie that didn't exist yet? Did that does that come over years of working in Hollywood or do you have to take lessons? How do you figure that out? I'm actually I'm actually I'm actually terrible at pitching. I I hate it. It's the thing that I feel least comfortable doing. Um, and so to me, for me, the pitch fortunately was just the script. I just had the script. I, I always, for me, I'd always rather just spec something and just write it yeah. because I think that also when you're pitching, 
when you're pitching something that isn't even on a page yet, it allows people to give notes on something that doesn't exist. And I'm like, why, why are you giving notes on something that doesn't exist? Like it's like, I'd much rather just write the damn thing. And so mm-hmm. the thing that people, the thing that people, and I guess it's like, it was frustrating at the time, but I'm guess, I guess I'm happy that they passed because the script was written. By the time we were taking it out for distribution, Jeffrey was attached. And so yeah. the script was written. Jeffrey was attached. We didn't have any other actors attached, but I had ideas of who I wanted. I had ideas of what the score would sound like. I had all these ideas of sort of like what I expected out of the movie. And I would tell people in the room, like, here's the script. Jeffrey Wright's attached. Like, here's what I envision. Here's here's what I'd like to make. And most people passed on that. And I, and I think that I'm happy that they did in the long run because they didn't see the movie, you know, they didn't, they, they I, I wouldn't yeah. have wanted, I wouldn't have wanted people to sign on if they were hesitant about the movie that I was going to make, because yeah. then, it's, cause then it's like a really miserable experience, right? Because then it's like, well, you want something that I don't want to give you. And then we just sort of like are locking horns. And, and it's just, especially because it's the first thing that I've made at some point, I, somebody might've come along and just said like, we're taking control of this thing. And like, who knows what happens then? So it was frustrating and dispiriting at the time to have so many people sort of, cause that's the thing I had never, I had never, I'd never experienced more effusive praise about the creative in my life, like I, I like I've had people pass on stuff that I do a lot. You know, that's the nature of this business is rejection. But I had never before like I was being brought into rooms where people were like, this is one of the best scripts that I've read in years. This is one of the best scripts that I've ever read. My God, like Jeffrey, right? We loved like people were just like crazy and maybe they were just blowing smoke. I have no idea. But but it seemed like people were genuinely enthusiastic. And then when it came time to actually offer us money for the film, it was like, eh. Not really for us. And so that to me was, uh, yeah, it was frustrating. But, but you know, I, I think that for me, the the best sales tool for me is always just the script. And it's like, yeah, here's the way that I see it. And it's not like I'm not taking notes on this. I'm not one of those people who's precious about it. But to me, the best sales tool is just like, here's what it looks like. Here's the, And you can either see it or you can't see it, you know? At, you told Mike Sure that at one point you actually called it fuck. Yeah. I don't know at what point that title fell off. Was it in these meetings? <laughs> at what point in the process no, did you no. leave that behind? God, it was, that was, we, the fuck was on the clapper. We, the, the, <laughs> the rap gifts for the movie said fuck. Everybody came to work knowing the movie was fuck. Like it was like, it was called fuck well into the process. We, we, finally, we finally had a conversation where I think that they, I think that we, somebody reached out to the Motion Picture Association and just sort of floated the idea of what if there was a movie called Fuck? And the Motion Picture Association came back and I believe they said we wouldn't rate, wouldn't give a rating to that movie. Yeah. And that sort of like is a cascading effect if a movie's not rated, then there's theaters that won't show unrated movies because it's pornographic and it just starts yeah. to become like difficult to get out there. But so, but the, I mean, the real, the real selling point wasn't even that because I was like, screw them, it's a joke, they can't. And but, but the real selling point was like, was a producer finally came to me and he was like, look, if you Google fuck movie, nobody's gonna find our movie. It's just gonna be <laughs> porn. It's gonna be sort of like t- pages and pages of porn. So he was like, just we need to change it. And so, but it was, it was fuck throughout the entire shooting process. It was fuck when I sent it to all the actors. Like, like it was just, (laughs) it was a good gimmick at first because it's like, everybody has a lot of scripts to read. And so it felt like Mm -hmm. maybe this gets to kick to the top of the pile, just out of sort of like morbid curiosity. Like what, what is fuck by Cord Jefferson? You know? Well, and then do you surprise people when there's like, Oh, there's an emotional parent story in here. Like (laughs) is the idea that you kind of like hoodwink them a little bit and they like it more. Yeah. I think that like for me, and maybe it comes like I really uh, I used to work at Gawker, as you may know. And, I said, and and to me, the best I always thought, like people would ask, like, what's a perfect Gawker story? And I would always say smart stuff done stupid and stupid stuff done smart. <laughs> and so like uh, and, and like that, that I think was like the perfect bullseye for a Gawker story. And so to me, a movie that's called fuck, but then you open it and it's like about this like novelist and college professor and sort of like there's all these sort of like you know weighty ideas about identity and race yeah. 
it's like it's like that is it's like a nice little it's a funny sort of like juxtaposition of this like really crass title with a movie that is actually sort of anything but crass. Yeah. I mean, also, I think you've talked about, you know, you grew up in Arizona, like you, you know, want this movie to be able to be seen by people who are not in New York and L.A. Because I think the the point of reference I hear most often for like the tone of this movie is James L. Brooks, who would have made, you know, Turns of Endearment was the highest grossing movie of its year. Like these, it can be like super broad and appealing and have all that subversive stuff in there at the same time. So that was part of how you came around to it too, right? To let people in Tucson see it. Yeah. I just wanted it to feel, I wanted this to be a like a movie that in, was inviting, you know, mm-hmm. and that ultimately was sort of like the the real the real sort of like heart of the decision was like this is less inviting to people, and you want this to be inviting, and so that yeah. is that is ultimately what sort of swayed it. Yeah. Although I've never seen Terms of Endearment, people really? keep bringing up Terms of Endearment, and I got I got to watch it. I've never. I seen mean, Terms I guess I more think of broadcast news because broadcast news has the like satire aspect to it I love of the news. news but so yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but but. but no, you're not the first person who said that. Like that, multiple people have said that to me at this point. I gotta watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, terms of endearment has the like thorny, like relationship within a family. I think more, um, yeah. which would be yeah. Watch watch terms of endearment, and then watch Shirley MacLaine's um, best actress acceptance speech for terms of endearment, which is okay, like, absolutely all time. Like, she's amazing. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's the best. She ends it by saying, "I deserve this. Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> I want someone else to do it so badly. (laughs) Um, I don't know if people who aren't in media think about you being at Gawker as much as the rest of us do, because I've, you know, I feel like if we're in the early 2010s, there was this whole thing being like, everyone's getting out of media. They're going to go, go to Hollywood where there's actual money and you actually get to tell your stories. And I think the way that you've talked about it is it was kind of like leaving one crazy business and finding something crazy in another one. Did it? Yeah. Did it feel as much like the as the scales lifting from your eyes as it seems to me where you kind of realize it's run by the sort of the same people and sort of the same limited imagination and then having to fight your way from there? Yeah, yes. And also, I think that I got into this industry, not at the beginning by any means, because it had already happened, but like this industry, Hollywood is being overtaken by tech billionaires. Yeah. Same way that media is being overtaken by tech billionaires. And so that brings the same troubles that I was dealing with at Gawker. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and we were all dealing with in sort of like media at the time and s- are still dealing with like all of those same issues are coming to bear. And I don't know and, if you notice it's, it's not gotten better since you left media. I don't know <laughs> if you've been reading the news. No, believe me, I stay in touch with <laughs> with my former Gawker colleagues and and a lot of people. And you know, I have a ton of friends who are still journalists and in media. I was actually just talking to Kara Swisher the other day on her podcast, and she said she's about to come out with an entire book about the ways in which the ways in which sort of like tech billionaire sort of toxicity is polluting is polluting film and television and so i i think that that to me is really what knocked the scales off my eyes was like oh you can't escape these people anymore you know this is this is these people are here to stay for the time being and and like we just all need to figure out how to work around them as opposed to sort of like thinking that we can run away from them because at first Mm -hmm. there was part of me that was like oh i'm running away from these people great Never have to think about them ever again in my life. And then I got here and I was like, oh, yeah. okay. I guess it's, I, I guess they're here too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like Issa Rae said something publicly kind of similar to this recently. And then Dakota Johnson said something like this, like promoting Madam Web. Like there's been this interesting ability to kind of acknowledge that rot at the top that I don't think yeah. existed before the strikes. And I, I don't want you to tell me you feel more optimistic because, you know, things are still hard. But do, do you think the fact that people are willing to say it out loud is going to help anything? Yes. And I think that I think that I hope I think that we've gotten to a place now where a lot of people like I, I remember I'm of I'm sort of an elder millennial, I guess we're called Same. geriatric millennial yep. where like, I remember life before the internet. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of like the, and I remember the promise of the internet being, this is going to democratize the world. 
It's going to sort of like it's go, it's going to sort of like allow the little guy a chance to speak up. And these people are the people who are giving us this stuff are like benevolent geniuses who just want to sort of like allow us to communicate better and see photos of our families and and sort of like talk to people around the world. And that's they have nothing but sort of like good hopes and dreams for this stuff. Yeah. And then and then you sort of like we're 20 years into it and it's like, oh, these people are just <laughs> fucking corporate barons the same way that like the, that all these other people were corporate barons before them right the like Carnegie's. The that, yeah it goes yeah, like exactly. the same way like these people these people are just like they're not benevolent they don't have our best interests at, at heart and we're all seeing that and we're all suffering from it now people like people are constantly losing their jobs we see that not only people are people already constantly losing their jobs they are actively working to like the number one job in most states in America is truck driver. Like, like, and, and like, like, what happens? Like, and as, and we know as soon as as soon as self driving cars are yeah. sort of road safe, that is a job that is going away forever, forever. Like, like, it's it, we we've just we've just and and it's like TV writers. We understand that like that's why we're so fighting so hard against AI is because we know they are actively working all the time to try to eliminate human beings from commerce, yeah. right? Except as consumers and not sort of like as, as sort of like employees and creatives. And so to me, I think that what's happening is like a lot of people are waking up from this fantasy that they were or waking up from this dream world that was yeah. sold to us. They're like, no, these people are here to help. They're all here to help. And we realize like, oh, there was like, like Elon Musk is like a race replacement theory guy, right? And like and like and and like Peter Thiel is like suing publications that he doesn't like out of business. And like like th these people are not they're not for sort of like the benefit of the common man. Like they're yeah. for the benefit of themselves. And so um I'm I think that I'm happy that sort of like more people are speaking out about it, but I'm also think that I'm happy to see that I think you're seeing a lot of people rebel against it, you know, yeah. I think, and not just in this industry, I think in all industries. And so that gives me hope that at least the tides are turning against this idea. Like, I really do think that we were all sort of like living in this fantasy land that like Silicon Valley is going to save us. Like they're yeah. going to solve all of our problems. And it's like, no, they're just going to give us like a bunch more problems that, that we didn't know that we, that we, that we sort of like didn't have before. Yeah. Or they're going to augment the problems that already existed. I feel like Gawker was very ahead of the curve in acknowledging that, which was, um, you know, one of, one of some of the headwinds it was facing. <laughs> yeah. It didn't work out great for them. Yeah, to its detriment. <laughs> <laughs> um, to go really micro on American fiction, even though, you know, we're getting to the end of it. But I read Erasure and I was really interested in these spots where... The book is a lot of the same family story. It's the same kind of satire of the industry. But there's this way that Monk in the book is obsessed with, like, the structure of how a book should work. And, you know, something we see in the film where he's like, it has to be avant-garde. It has to be difficult. Um, and I wondered if the ending of this movie felt like your nod to that, that, like, you can't end an adaptation of Erasure with a straightforward ending. And therefore, you have to fiddle with it a little bit. Um, did, did that book version of Monk and that sense of structure linger with you in any way? Yeah, absolutely. To me, the key to so something that I learned on Watchmen that I felt was very helpful, which is the Watchmen was the first adaptation I'd ever worked on. And the thing that Damon kept saying is like, look, we're building a whole new world. We need to create whole new characters. And so th there's like a blue sky in front of us. But to give us some parameters for discussion, he always said it needs to feel Watchmen. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's sort of like this left of center idea that's like out of nowhere, as long as it feels, it gives us the same feeling that the original comic book did. And we understand, you know, we understand the intangibility of that feeling. Like we understand what that means. And so somebody would pitch something and be like, that's a good pitch, but it just doesn't feel Watchmen, right? It doesn't feel like what we should be doing. And so to me, when I got, that was an important lesson in like what good adaptation is. It isn't necessarily hewing so closely to the text. It's sort of, it's sort of what is what is something that feels like it's the essence of what the novel or or whatever you're trying to adapt is. And so to me, the three tent poles that I felt like were important were the first one is it had to be funny. Yeah. Uh, because erasure is very funny. The second was that it um it couldn't be didactic because sort of like the entire point of erasure is that sort of it doesn't offer solutions. It just sort of like says you're an adult. It allows you to sort of like figure out what you want to say about it. And then the um, 
Third was exactly to your point. It's the, it's metatextual. Yeah. Is that sort of like Percival's Percival's writing is very frequently metatextual and experimental. And so I knew that I wanted to keep that I had to have something that felt a little meta, um, like the book does. And so yeah. to me, I was sort of like the ending was the last thing to come. Like literally, like literally, not obviously the ending is the last thing to come in the writing, but but the original ending to the script was was vastly different than the than the ending that that it became. And we were like a month out from pre-production and one of the producers called me and was like, we really just got to figure out what the ending is going to be. So you got to figure it out. And so um, I went and, and slept on, he, and he said, I was on, we were having this conversation on a long drive. I was taking a long drive to this wedding that I had to go to. And he said, he said, listen, the only note that I will give you is try to come up with an ending that feels as audacious as the rest of the film. Because he said wow. the film is a big swing. So try to come up with an ending that feels like a big swing. That's not hard. Just, you know, be <laughs> audacious. <laughs> and and I went and slept on it and I woke up the next morning. And you know what I think I had in my mind is the player. We called it the player ending. The, mm-hmm. the Robert Altman mm-hmm. is the player. And it felt like this is like the ending to kind of to the player, but even more meta than that, right? Which yeah. is... The, which is that sort of he steps out of this world. And it felt like that's the only, it was the only intellectually and emotionally right conclusion. You know, it was, it was sort of like satisfying intellectually, satisfying emotionally, because he goes out there and he sees his brother. Yeah, you need the family there. Yeah, you should like that there as well. And then on top of that, it's just the, the suggestion, which is one of the suggestions of the movie, hopefully, is, is this idea that like, What's more important maybe is the sort of systemic issues, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the, like it's it's the suggest the acknowledgement I think that like there's an entire system that Monk is working within um and not just sort of like individual players the way that sort of like you might think as before and like this is a system mm-hmm. that I am working in. This is a system in which like Monk is working in. This is originally, the, the, I'll tell you the only difference between that ending that I first wrote after he said be audacious was I got a little bit too audacious and mm-hmm. I initially I initially wrote myself into the, into the <laughs> it, was, it was me there with Monk and everybody was like, this, like, this is crazy. Why not? What just if have- you had done that and then Killers of the Flower Moon comes out and Scorsese is at the end of that one too? It <laughs> been both of you. <laughs> It's yeah, good company. It been very weird. Yeah, amazing <laughs> company, but they were like, they were like, it's funny because they were like, nobody knows who you are. It'll be so weird. They're like, it'll be so confusing. Martin Scorsese, at least you know, it's Martin. He's Scorsese. been in a lot of his own movies. He's kind of laid the track for that. Is this like Jeffrey Wright stand-in? Like, why is he? Why is because Jeffrey and I have also started to look alike, especially when I'm wearing my glasses. So that it would have just been chaos. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, erasure ends in a quote in Latin that I then had to Google immediately, which I'm sure everyone else has had to do too. So I mean, you, it, audacious really is the. Um... But that's but that that quote is why I felt like it can't be didactic because the quote mm-hmm. the, the quote is I offer no hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. When you're on Watchmen, you got Damon telling you it feels Watchmen. You've got a room of people to bounce off what is, what isn't Watchmen. You're doing this on your own. It's in your own head to decide what is erasure, fuck, whatever. How do you learn to, to make that voice inside your head as opposed to in a room full of people? It's hard, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a. Look, it. I sort of, I'm not the kind of person who's like I show my writing to a lot of people. I showed, I showed the script to Damon Lindelof. I showed the script to Mike Schur. They're like my biggest mentors in this industry and sort of like they've become really close friends. And so it's not like I'm doing this just in a vacuum where it's like I don't show it to anybody. It's like and then it's like we're shooting what I wrote. Um, So I have I do have sort of like a a brain trust that I that I that I believe in that I will show the work to. And so it's not just me. But but, you know, that was also part of it. the, The Just the voice being in my head was part of one of the things that was exciting to me because I had a, I have a fabulous TV career. I loved working on every show that I worked on. I really worked for some people that I, Damon and Mike and Jesse Armstrong, like people whose work I really love and respect. And, and I feel really great about all the TV experiences I had. But there was always this little nagging voice, chip on my shoulder almost about like, do you think you can do this without, without them? Yeah. Like prove it's it. Like, you, like, yeah. It's like, it's yeah. like, it's like you want an Emmy. 
but you want an Emmy on Damon's show and sort of like you've been on, you've, people love The Good Place, but The Good Place is Mike's show. Like, like there's just a part of me that's like, can you do this without the training wheels of like bosses and a writer's room? Like, could you do this on your own? And so to me, that that was a part of what I was, part of what I was looking for was like, can you do this by yourself? Can you do this with uh, a script that you wrote, a movie that you directed? Can you find some success without the help of sort of like these, you know, it's kind of like the bird leaving the nest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the experience was was this feeling of like, can I do this or not? And it's like, can I sink, am I going to sink or swim when I finally go out on my own? And so that was, th- that was part of the, part of the experience. And yes, it was definitely scary. It was far more scary than, than working in a writer's room, of course, but, but it was a good fear and sort of like, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that I went through it. Yeah. Um, to wrap it up by going back to award season, you, you won that Emmy for Watchmen, but that was with the COVID Emmys where you're like, in a, I vividly remember it's like eight of you guys like standing in a room with like a flag on the wall, I think. Damon's, Damon's, Damon's living room. That was <laughs> so like award yeah. season is weird, but it, that has to have been weirder. Like it's got to be less strange doing this all in real life, right? Well, no, yeah. Oh my God. And it was also, it was also like, I'll tell you what was really strange about it was like, I was like, are we all going to die? Like, like, I was like, I was like, I was like, when the aliens find like our bodies, are they going to think like these people were like giving trophies out when they were all dying? Like, it's like, it's like these people were like putting on tuxedos and standing in the backyard. To give each other COVID. Yeah, like giving like while while the whole world was dying. Like that was that was the thing that I couldn't. It's like it would have like the the thing that I kept thinking was like it's like people's talk about rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. But imagine like giving each other awards on the like as the Titanic. Like imagine giving each other like you do like yeah. Like what is the like? It's like it's like imagine having an award show on the Titanic. That's how it felt. Like well, are we crazy? It was weird. Uh, <laughs> it was, was fun so- I mean I'm sure that you guys felt this like it was just like oh can we just have this can we just do this silly thing while everything is miserable I had, I had a great time but like it, afterwards I was like like I didn't even get the trophy for months and months and months because the factory where they made them was shut down because it was COVID because it was COVID so they were like we're not making these <laughs> it's like, we're not essential workers go home <laughs> exactly we're not making these. So they sent it to me in the mail like <laughs> eight months later. Uh, so, so yeah. So, so it was like, so um, look, I love the movie. I'm so proud of the movie. I love talking about it. I'm so proud of the work. I'm so proud of everybody who worked on it. I think that the thing that I'm really love about the Oscar nominations is that it's not just like me. It's, it's like sort of like it's, it's acknowledging that the film is a, the work of, hundreds of other people yeah. and that other people are being acknowledged for that work is like means the world to me. But yeah, the, the, the outside of that, it's like the thing that I really like doing this in the real world is like, you know, going to, you know, the, I was at a, an award show thing in London a couple weeks or last week and like was talking to Jonathan Glazer and like, I got to, I got to hang out with Jonathan Glazer and like tell him how obsessed I am with his movies and sort of like here, his thought, like, ask him, you know, why he takes time between projects that he does and sort of like, and I get to meet other creatives and other people who are interested in this kind of stuff like yourself. And like, it's just that to me has been the, has been the nice thing is, is I really like the camaraderie in this industry. Yeah. You know, it, it that, that is the one thing that I really, I really missed about working at Gawker is that, is that I really, you know, media is sort of like a community and you and you meet people and you go work at different jobs and they go and like people travel around but you stay together and you stay close and so i really miss the the camaraderie of media and i think that this has allowed me a little bit more of the camaraderie that i was that i was missing is sort of like the ability to meet the people who work in this industry and sort of and 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 spend time here and 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 talk about art with them and talk about their work and talk about my work like that has been um, incredibly meaningful to me. So, so, and to feel, you know, to feel that's, what's nice about the Oscars is that it's other artists, you know, to feel, to feel like you are um, 
Like they're like saying like, yes, like welcome into the fold. That mm-hmm. is, that is, uh, you know, that, that is incredibly gratifying and, and, and warm. Yeah. I heard you've got a, you did a conversation with Ruben Ostland that um, I'm very intrigued oh. to watch like that. I feel like yeah. you guys could have a lot to talk about. Yeah, truly. Like that guy, he asked me once, he asked me once and I may try to like convince him to like do this together, but he, the first question he asked me was like, have you thought about trying to write a satirical movie about awards season? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, man, that, that would be really cool. And I would watch the hell out of that. And I was like, have you? And he said, no, he said, he said, I've thought about it, but I think that like, he said, the hard part is like how to make it interesting to people who don't care about movies. Like yeah. if they're not in this stuff like like how do you how do you make it bigger and so like i've been trying to crack that nut and so maybe maybe uh that would be like i, I would love to do that with ruben i think it would be so interesting i heard sarah polly say sometime last season that she wanted to make a movie about award season too so either you guys all really? team up or you race each other i feel like her take would be really different from ruben's and different from yours but yeah, like absolutely. um like a new york stories thing where you each do, yeah, do no, your I, love that. I love that that would I actually be really cool yeah all right we're gonna work on making that happen That does it for today's show. We'll be back later next week. You can hear about Kara's further adventures in Los Angeles and award season. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at BF Awards Insider. I'm out there at Katie Rich and Kara. Kara J. Warner. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.